0: Hello everyone, this is Dr. Tom Skeen, and this is the Teaching Writing in College podcast. And I would like to share for my second episode, my reaction to chat GPT. The idea that students could use artificial intelligence to do their written work is at first disconcerting. And maybe disconcerting isn't a word strong enough to capture what we might be feeling in higher education. I was more than disconcerted when I first heard of chat GPT. The news that students could feed it a prompt, ask it to rewrite its answer to the prompt by decreasing the level of diction, and then asking it to adjust the style again to make it sound like a high school sophomore. That's exactly what a high school sophomore did in a recent story on the Ed Surge podcast titled, What Will Chat GPT Mean for Teaching? Jeff Young, education journalist and host of the podcast, even floated the word existential to describe students' use of AI. To educators, artificial intelligence does sound like an endgame scenario. If students can enlist a bot to do their work for them, the world of higher education suddenly feels a bit more dystopian. I felt that way, for a couple of hours anyway, until I had some time to think in further detail. I know that concerns about academic dishonesty predate my career by many decades. I have been teaching writing courses for 23 years, but I know that concerns about artificial intelligence are just the latest in a long history of concerns about the integrity of written assignments. I remember conversations in teaching seminars I took in graduate school, when writing assignments were still mostly always turned in on paper, about file cabinets of papers being kept at frat houses. As Internet use became more commonplace in the mid to late 1990s, professors began worrying that any student could find material on the web and paste it seamlessly into credit-bearing writing assignments without detection. Then came plagiarism checkers to search for matches in student papers with online material. Students responded by rewording an existing paper in sentence-by-sentence fashion, maybe one that they acquired from a site like Course Hero to slip past detection. And now students have chat GPT, which doesn't need to be used to write a paper. Students could just use it to reword one, which may mean that the plagiarism checkers will need to adjust for AI. And will we begin using AI to detect papers written by AI? Will plagiarism checkers eventually catch up? That question was asked a few weeks ago also at EdSurge. Perhaps educators will adjust technology to account for artificial intelligence and maybe students will even help us with that. Edward Tian, a student at Princeton, responded to chat GPT with GPT0, which can analyze student papers and advise professors about the likelihood that they were generated with the help of AI, and he got a lot of positive feedback from faculty across the country. I've rehearsed this brief history in detail because it sheds light on an important problem in higher education. Students find ways to do things easier then educators adjust, then students adapt, then educators adjust again. The trouble, though, is that this battle seems like a war of attrition, pitting educators against students. We seem to be overlooking the actual dynamics of learning, and I think finding ways to defend our written assignments against AI is the wrong battle to fight. Having had time to reflect, I see ChatGPT as a gift to higher education generally, and to writing pedagogy specifically not because I suddenly feel that I can live with academic dishonesty after all my hard work in the classroom, but because it forces me to take yet another look at pedagogy. At least anecdotally, I would argue that our perception of student learning is skewed toward the big performances, like papers or written final exams. Students are always asking me if there's a midterm or a final in my classes, because they probably have them in some of their other classes, and they make travel plans around them because they are worth a lot of points. And my experience in higher education from my first days as a freshman student until now has always centered on final performances instead of day-to-day learning experiences. In undergraduate classes I have taken, in graduate seminars, and in the writing classes I have taught for the last 20-plus years, it has always been about the final exams, high-stakes quizzes, research papers, or a few large projects, assessments with grades that carry a lot of weight. As a rookie writing instructor in graduate school, I remember puzzling over how much weight to assign papers versus participation, assuming that three or four larger papers should carry a cumulative weight of no less than 70% of a final grade. I was, after all, teaching writing classes, so that's where the points should go. Typical ungraded assignments, drafts, peer reviews, and participation made up the other 30% together. And I know that some departments have had similar policies around grades and participation, but I never wondered until news broke about ChatGPT what might happen if I did the reverse, weighting participation as the majority of the course grade at 70% or higher. I have rarely seen a substantial weight given to participation, represented by the day-to-day interactions that learners might have with the material they should learn in grading systems I have used as a teacher or that have been used on me as a student. The trouble is that heavily weighted A heavily weighted piece of writing is only a representation of a single attempt by a student. It shouldn't be used to represent students' accumulated knowledge because even larger research papers are evidence only of a relatively short, intensive burst of effort. When I was an undergraduate student studying literature, I took an intensive two-credit seminar in classical literature. My professor, who passed away some years ago, assigned a 10-page paper about a major theme in a classical work of our choosing. I don't remember the details of my paper other than I tried to draw larger conclusions about the story of Achilles. Writing the paper, which was worth most of the credit in the course, was tantamount to cramming for an exam. It took several days to write, but that really wasn't enough time to learn about Achilles. I sure remember the grade, though. It came back with a B, and I remember the feedback at the top next to the grade. Too much summary. The grade and the feedback are more instructive to me now than they were then. I now remember little to nothing about Achilles, and the professor was probably trying to reward the wrong kind of learning activity. She was jumping to critical thinking by looking for an argument from me, but i was struggling to understand achilles in the first place i still needed to work through the story as well as its potential themes and implications before i could would be able to think critically about it i needed to practice remembering and comprehension which was what my mind must have been trying to do through summary yet as it turns out summarizing was a good or is a good way to learn Learning over time about Achilles, though, say through an extended reading log coupled with discussions and notes in class, could have helped me get from summary to critical thinking, but both my professor and I assumed I would do that when I wrote the paper. From a cognitive perspective, learning is really about problem solving and finding different means to solve different ends. It's about taking inventory of what tools are available and then using them to achieve the ends we want. To take writing as an example. In the real world, a lot of writing is used for various ends, and writers will more likely deploy their problem-solving fac- faculties to turn their writing into the best means possible. One will try to write a competitive, feasible grant proposal if the goal is to help fund a worthy project. By contrast, high-stakes graded writing prompts students to try to solve the wrong problem. In the classroom, grading systems make grades a central goal, and they prompt students to deploy problem-solving to that end. In heavily-weighted writing assignments, a student's problem solving faculties are more likely working on the problem of grades, and grades aren't always earned directly through performance on assignments. We've all had students toward the end of the semester who have asked what they could do to pass the class or get an A, for, uh, to turn an A from an A minus to an A. Such questions don't focus on the content of the course. The fact that student the student is approaching us shows that the grade is the end for them and we are the means. If students use artificial intelligence to avoid classwork or achieve a higher grade, AI becomes another means students can use to achieve the high stakes ends we often establish for them. So what should we do? Course grades aren't likely to go away, but we can still use the grading system to lower the stakes on large assignments and reward practice over time instead. There's a lot of research in educational and cognitive psychology that says learning takes place over time through varied practice. To use learning music as an example, two of my children are taking music lessons right now, both for less than two years. Will they learn to play well just by playing at their recital at the end of the year? No, they practice daily. And then they are are successful at their recital. And what's more, the big performance is treated differently. Their piano teacher puts on a beautiful recital at the end of the year. She invites her students, families, and books a small, intimate venue, and talks up their hard work and accomplishments at the recital, and then serves catered refreshments at the end for everyone. In other words, the end performance is not a high-stakes affair. It's a celebration. Here's another quick example. Would any competitive sports team show up to games without regular practice each season and even off season? No, because skipping practice would guarantee that they lose, maybe every game. Placing greater weight on participation in practice will yield better results for all students, not just those who might try to use Chat GPT to get out of working on an assignment. In the book Make It Stick, which I think any educator should read, Peter Brown, Henry Roediger, and Mark McDaniel recount an experience that political science professor Andrew Sobel had with his classes when he adjusted his point distribution away from two high-stakes exams. As he attempted to respond to students' lack of attendance in his large lecture classes, he eventually decided to distribute points across nine quizzes with the same kind of content as the exams with explicit dates on the syllabus. He moved away from pop quizzes because students appreciated predictability. The results? Sobel saw more attendance, higher quality answers on the quiz questions, higher quality discussions in class, and a stronger ability to write about course concepts. In other words, students simply performed better when their points were distributed across the semester. And if writing is the main subject of study, say in first-year first writing courses or writing courses designed for specific majors, what might participation in practice look like? How could one distribute those points away from larger assignments? Here's an example during my career i've taught argumentation a lot knowing about it is useful for a lot of different kinds of writing and it helps with the hard skills too i've taught it in two ways in the first which i don't do anymore I often introduced a strategy to students and then had them apply that strategy directly to their larger, heavily weighted assignment. And then I didn't go back to that strategy very much. Students were likely to execute that strategy well because they were in class at the time. I'd see it in their heavily weighted, graded work, and then I would assume they were learning it. Students who participated regularly were more likely to get better grades, and I was happy with that. But conversations with students on a day-to-day basis proved that they weren't learning. Dr. Skeen, what's this thing about the rule of justice on the study guide, they would ask. So I'd rehearse it with them by telling them about it, remind them to include the strategy in their paper, and leave it at that. My second approach to instruction, which I now use after becoming more familiar with scholarship on things like learning transfer and the benefits of practice, is much more focused on practice, which I reward with participation credit. I often introduce a new strategy by connecting it to other strategies and give students an opportunity to use the strategy in a scenario I create. Then I might wait a class period or two and bring it back for practice by interleaving it with something else. In a homework assignment, I might ask them to use the strategy to draft something they'll use later. When they revise, I'll ask them to consider the strategy again even when the larger assignment is finished i'll still bring the strategy back sometimes for a shorter 10-minute practice session and we might go in depth for a longer period of time later periodically I'll ask them to bring in work from other classes or their jobs so we can see how our writing strategies in our class might apply there. Introducing and bringing back a concept in a crowded lesson plan need not be difficult. James Lang's Small Teaching, another book I think all educators should read, has been a great help as I have thought about how to reintroduce and repractice skills with students. Evidence of their practice and their engagement, their participation, can come in the form of their notes, and I can hand those notes back the next class period. And while they're in class to get their participation credit, I can use strategies they are learning as I talk to them. I can use the rule of justice on them directly from time to time. Should I follow the rule of justice by treating you the same way I treat my other students? I'll ask. They'll respond with, it depends. I gave them homework for for Tuesday, I'll announce. And then they'll argue. Ah, Dr. Skeen, you don't have to put yourself through that. Think of the extra grading you'll have to do. You should spend more time with your kids. But I have to be ethical and fair, I'll say. Then I'll show them I've already posted it on their calendar in the LMS. And they'll remember the rule of justice at the end of the semester because we have practiced it in class periodically, looked at how it might apply in their other classes or beyond, and even put it in front and center in conversation periodically when I introduce upcoming homework. This isn't to say that larger writing projects aren't valuable. I could leave some room in my syllabus to include them while weighting them with fewer points and investing the bulk of credit in day-to-day participation. And I can still work on larger projects with students in class, but only as a part of a mix of interleaved participation activities. And as I see their practice in their classwork and homework, which I collect and read, I could could reward them with that. Uh, I could reward that effort with participation credit. Thus, one of my main responses to developments in artificial intelligence, especially where writing is concerned, is that participation credit could be more than a ticket out so that I know who was in class. It could be more than asking, what's the muddiest point for you in our learning for today at the end of class and then asking them to turn that in? Talking about muddy points is an important reflective tool that helps us understand our students' current state of comprehension. But I also know that those muddy points will become clearer if students practice over time. It's another, also another good question they can cover in some written participation work that I collect. Instead, I like to collect large chunks of written participation each day in things they did in groups, and things they did on their own, or things they did in homework. Ultimately, the question I try to answer as I am awarding participation credit is, did you actively practice our skills over time? If we can incentivize students in ways that enable us and our learners to answer yes to that question, we'll see even more learning than we probably do, even for students who wouldn't use AI to gain the system. My hope is that we can use developments in technology to our advantage, to students' advantage, by letting those developments prompt us to improve our pedagogy. So thank you so much for listening. I'm new to podcasting, so my next step for this episode is to work on show notes. I have an article from NPR about Edward Tian and GPT Zero I'd like to link to, as well as a story from Ed Surge I mentioned at the beginning. Please enjoy those. In my next episode, I would like to discuss ways I would assign write assignment prompts to address the challenges artificial intelligence poses to academic integrity, while also bringing the focus back to good pedagogy. And in the near future, I could share more details about how I handle participation credit. And, of course, in upcoming episodes, I'd like to begin talking about scholarship and writing studies, as well as pedagogical techniques that I find helpful. I hope you'll join me for all of that. See you next time.